Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode is part one of a 12-part series entitled COVID-19, Answering the Questions. This series features brief updates on the latest incidents and clinical data related to COVID-19 diagnosis and management, each followed by a question and answer session designed to address infectious disease specialists' most pressing COVID-19 questions. During this podcast, Dr. Vikram Mukherjee from New York City will provide a short update on the latest COVID-19 incidence trends, the role of serology in disease assessment, and newly published data on evidence-based antiviral therapy for severe COVID-19 disease. For more information on Dr. Mukherjee and for a link to additional online education from CCO's COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear a brief COVID-19 update and answers to clinician questions by Dr. Mukherjee. Hi everybody, my name is Vikram Andi. I'm a critical care uh, physician based out of New York City and uh, work in the Bellevue ICU. Uh, Bellevue Hospital is a uh, public hospital and uh, was part of the surge that New York City saw. And I'd like to share some of the experiences that we saw here Uh, over the last few months and go over any questions that we might have uh, towards the end of this talk. Uh, Thank you for coming and uh, I look forward to have an exciting session with you. So um, as you probably know, over the last five months or so, um, the world has gone over a major upheaval based on uh, uh, on this new pandemic uh, on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, The most recent numbers, as you can see on the slide, and these numbers are evolving very quickly show that there's more than five and a half million patients who have been infected, known infections with COVID-19, uh, more than 350,000 deaths. And these are known deaths um, based on uh, testing. I can assure you that the, uh, a large number of patients have died either from COVID undiagnosed or because of poorer access to healthcare, uh, since hospitals in many parts of the world have been overwhelmed with uh, the pandemic um, in the US. Uh, more than 1.7 million cases, uh, more than 100,000 deaths uh, attributed to COVID-19, a very sobering figure. Um, And New York City, as you know, has been the epicenter of this outbreak in the United States. Um, Thankfully, at least for the first wave, things look to be improving. As you can see here, these are the five-day moving averages of daily confirmed new cases. And as you can see here, uh, most of the uh, trends, uh, the five-day averages in new cases are coming down nicely. Um, of course, these are in places who, that have seen uh, a huge surge in the first wave. Um, and uh, there are other places in the, in the world, um, in Southeast Asia, in parts of Africa, which haven't seen their first wave yet. And numbers there, uh, slopes there are still climbing. I would urge you to interpret this graph with a bit of caution. Uh, knowing that history repeats itself, we should learn from our 1918 influenza pandemic where the second wave affected and killed way more patients than the first wave did. And we need to be cautious in how we uh, continue with our continue or stop our social distancing, uh, interpret our antibody results, which we'll come to in a little bit. But for this first wave, at least, it, I'm happy to show you that the numbers are coming down fairly nicely and we can look at, we have similar experiences in the ICU where there is a sense of normalcy uh, returning slowly to our daily workflow. Um, A few questions, so as we broach upon these antibodies, um, the first question that I'd like to highlight and show some data about is 
uh, the question that we often on get at the bedside, do the antibody tests have a role in diagnosis? So going over the basic antibodies, there are four of them that can be used. Three of them are approved in the US, um, the fourth in Singapore. Um, the first one is a rapid diagnostic test. It has a decent sensitivity of close to 90 to 99%, and it tells us the presence of antiviral antibodies. Uh, it, uh, the second one in a, is a conventional ELISA test. It takes a little bit longer. Sensitivity depends on when you're testing uh, the patient uh, post-exposure, and again, tells us in a quantitative way uh, whether the patient has antibodies or not. The third one, neutralization assays, is not available in the US, but is available in other parts of the world, mostly in Singapore. And the last one is a chemiluminescent immunoassay with varying degrees of sensitivity as well. Um, now, as most of you know, antibodies take a little bit of time to uh, form and has a lot of uh, host immune system response to affect it. So if you look at this graph, for example, uh, if for example, a patient gets infected on day zero, the conventional incubation period from what the data suggests now is between two and 14 days. You have a huge explosion in virus titers. Um, and over time, as your host immune system responds and has the time to build uh, an antibody response to it, your IgM goes up and subsequently your IgG goes up. Now, a couple of uh, questions that come up quite often, and I'd like to clarify them while we're here is, uh, there is a fairly big lag period between when the patient has an infection and when the patient develops antibodies. Um, so for this reason, the CDC is pretty stringent in saying that the antibody test results should not be used to diagnose someone with an active SARS-CoV-2 infection. And the patients between day zero or day two and day eight or nine will probably be not antibody positive, but will very much be uh, having a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So please do not use this for diagnosing somebody. The PCRs, and we can talk about that more, have a much, uh, is a much better way of diagnosing somebody to have this infection. The other question that comes up all the time is, and this, is, this can be uh, almost a misconception, is that if you have antibodies, you're immune. Um, I would suggest that we approach that with a lot of caution. We do not know if the antibodies provide immunity yet. The data is not there yet. We do not know that uh, whether antibodies today will still be present two or three weeks later. Uh, so just because one of us has antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 doesn't quite mean that you do not follow proper infection control practices, wear the proper PPE that you would uh, have otherwise worn. All it tells you that you've had an infection and you've recovered from the infection. It does not mean that you have immunity or any protection towards the secondary infection. The data for that is not quite there yet. The second thing that I'd like to cover is the latest data on the first evidence-based COVID-19 therapeutic trial. Um, as you know, uh, this is a novel virus. Uh, humankind didn't know that this existed around six months ago. And over the last six months, it's, as you saw, infected more than uh, five and a half million uh, patients, at least. Um, what this brings to the bedside is when patients are falling sick, all we have right now to do in an evidence-based manner is to provide supportive care, oxygen and on the floors, critical care support on, in the ICUs. And there's been a huge drive towards finding a therapeutic tool which will alleviate the burden of illness. Um, we'll come to this later, but there's dozens, if not scores of clinical trials that are ongoing right now, um, looking for a solution, a cure, or at least a clinical improvement uh, based on a therapeutic um, intervention. 
the first one that has shown some improvement in outcomes is the uh, NIAID-sponsored ACT-1 trial. It's an adaptive COVID-19 treatment trial. It came out a week or so ago in the New England, uh, and it studies the use of remdesivir, which is an antiviral, versus placebo in patients with hospitalized with COVID, confirmed COVID-19. Um, going over the trial design, it was a multi-center, adaptive, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase three trial. Uh, inclusion criteria were criteria were adult patients with confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection and had to have one of the following uh, criteria. Either they had uh, radiologic infiltrates of viral pneumonia or an ARDS pattern, slight hypoxia at least, SATs less than or equal to 94%, or they were critically ill in the, in the ICU. Um, nicely divided up into a trial arm and a placebo arm, and the initial hypothesis was to look for clinical improvement at day 29. Um, and by clinical improvement, we'll come, come to this in a second, but they had to show improvement in either their oxygenation status or their functional status. Um, so this was the um, clinical improvement that was the study endpoint. One was uh, you had to be in the ordinal scales of one, two, and three, one being you were discharged from the hospital uh, with no limitation on activities, going back to baseline. Clinical status ordinal scale number two was you were discharged, but you were discharged with a little bit of oxygen support at home. And clinical status ordinal scale number three was that you were hospitalized, but that was because you didn't have a safe place to go home. And it was mostly a community. Uh, you would be a community risk if you were to go home and infect um, older people, uh, younger people, or more immunocompromised people around you. Um, so these were the study endpoints the study looked at. And um, <clears throat> And the preliminary results from 1,000 odd patients with data available after randomization showed that um, the median recovery time uh, dropped by a good four days. Um, and uh, the p-value for this was statistically significant. The mortality had a trend towards uh, significant significance, didn't quite get there, but there was a mortality of 7% in the trial arm versus 12%, around 12% in the placebo arm. Um, uh, serious adverse effects, 20% uh, in the trial arm, in the drug arm, 20 in the remdesivir arm, but also 27% in the placebo arm. So not a huge difference between uh, those in uh, serious adverse events. So put, to put this in context, um, as you can imagine, there has been a huge um, uh, interest and initiative from the pharmaceutical companies, from uh, the research agencies to look at what actually works in patients who uh, are infected with COVID-19. There are a total of 469 trials that are currently recruiting patients, around 160 of, of them or so in the US. And this has a whole uh, a different spectrum looking at every possible uh, mechanism to stop the death and destruction that comes with this uh, virus. So for example, as you can see in this trial, we are, uh, centers are looking at convalescent plasma, whether a patient has recovered from COVID-19, transfusing that to an infected patient would have improved outcomes. A lot of these um, nitric oxide-prone positioning are ICU-relevant. Um, there are some trials here that are looking at stopping the inflammatory cascade that this virus brings with it. And just to put, you, put that in context, what we are, are saw in the bedside, is that around seven to 10 days after the patients came to the hospital, um, the, the patients went through an immense cytokine storm, a huge inflammatory cascade. Um, these were manifested by uh, fever, high, uh, high heart rates, high respiratory rates, um, no obvious evidence of infection. Inflammatory markers like CRPs, IL-6s, LDHs were through the roof. And 
the patients had a lot of hypotension from the vasoplegia. Um, on the bedside, we were trying uh, things to kind of stop the inflammatory cascades, steroids, um, IL-6 inhibitors. Um, but these are trials that look at that in a more systematic way to see if uh, there is a way to, um, to stop the host immune system from responding in such a damaging way. Um, there are remdesivir is one of the trials that now have a positive outcome. There are trials looking at uh, the role of ACE2 inhibitors uh, in the pathophysiology and the, uh, of this disease. Uh, so essentially there is a mountain of trials that are ongoing and hopefully we'll have something to help us besides for supportive care in battling uh, this very severe disease. Um, I'm gonna move on to your questions. Um, I want to reserve the next 20-25 minutes uh, of this session uh, just for you to ask questions on what we've gone through, uh, keeping in mind that the data behind this disease is evolving as we speak. So some of the questions, the answers to the questions might be different, but they'll be based on the best uh, knowledge that we have uh, right now. Great. Thank you, Dr. Mukherjee. That was a great introduction. And yes, we have had quite a few questions, so it, it definitely there's a lot of curiosity on this, this topic. So why don't I start with the first one? Um, um, a participant, Dick, asks if there have been studies to show that asymptomatic individuals can transmit um, because in HIV that requires a, a high viral load. And so the thinking would be that the viral load wouldn't be so high in asymptomatic patients. And um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, th th that's a great question, Nick, and you know, that's a great question, not just for us, but also for our public health colleagues who were uh, source identification and isolation is such a challenge, especially in a densely populated city like New York. So the short answer to that is yes. Uh, there is data from Europe and from the US showing that asymptomatic transmission occurs. Um, of course, uh, this is in line with the flu and with our other coronaviruses where viral shedding happens before a patient can become uh, febrile or dyspneic or short of breath. But yes, uh, there's no question. Um, it, there has been studies showing that asymptomatic transmission, that is transmission from human to human before the patient, the index patient bounce a fever or a cough uh, occurs. Um, the amount of transmission does seem to relate with how sick the index patient is. So it doesn't, um, so the, amount of infectivity is not as high as someone who's on the ventilator or, um, uh, or in the ICU, but uh, there is transmission from person to person before uh, someone becomes symptomatic. Okay, thank you. Um, the next question is um, from Gregory. When is a three-drug regimen approach going to be studied similar to as was done for HIV therapy? And um, the participant, Gregory, mentions there are inhibitors of type 2 transmembrane serine protein and viral translation inhibitors uh, that potentially could be added to remdesivir for more efficacy. Any thoughts there? Um, uh, great question again. Um, the Kalitra, one of the antiretroviral drugs, was studied in COVID-19, and there was a negative trial that came out in the New England in March. But that said, um, there is a three-drug uh, study that's ongoing right now, and I believe it's pretty near to completion, looking at protease inhibitors in conjunction with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Um, from what I understand, there is some promise in that, uh, but there are studies looking at a three-drug regimen as we speak. Okay. Another participant asks, what is the sensitivity and specificity of the COVID na nasopharyngeal testing? 
Oh, oh that's a very good question. And it's a humbling answer. It is not uh, good at all. Um, the, we have data from China, which has a couple of months uh, of uh, who are uh, of experience more than the U.S. has, but the rough numbers that came out from China show that an NP and an OP swab um, have a sensitivity of around 60%. Um, a tracheal aspirate gets you to around 70%, and a bronchalveolar lavage gets you to close to the 90-95% range. So this is where your clinical suspicion and your and how badly your community, your city is affected, comes into play. You should not be making, and this we probably faltered in this, to, in the beginning of our experience here. You uh, you should not be making big changes in de-escalating isolation based on a negative test. Uh, it has to be in the in conjunction with the clinical picture, with imaging, uh, with how uh, badly affected your community is, um, and the. The, the test, the nasopharyngeal or the oropharyngeal test adds um, adds as a complement to that whole algorithm, but should not be taken in isolation. Very helpful. Thank you. Okay, um, Roberto, Roberto asks um, about the rates of adverse effects that you may have seen with hydroxychloroquine and the macrolide in your own ICU. Can you speak much of that? Yeah, fair enough. So there's some data coming out from New York showing that the, there is pretty significant QT prolongation. Um, we were one of the trial sites uh, for hydroxy and azithro, um, as was um, one of our sister hospitals in the Bronx. Um, the, the amount of QT prolongation made our electrophysiologists very nervous. Um, we, when we were recruiting and when we were using this, we were getting daily QT and QTCs. Um, the actual incidence of how prolonged the, and how frequent the arrhythmias are, we don't quite know that yet, but it is something to definitely watch out for. Um, and there's at least one large observational trial looking uh, from New York, looking at whether hydroxyl and azithro, the combination worked. And it, it was observational, but it was a negative trial. It was a retrospective observational trial, but it was negative. So um, the, the risks might overweigh the benefits in this setting. Okay. That leads into the next question from Imira. What is the most promising therapy under investigation right now for COVID? Um, so it's good to have at least one antiviral drug that is now shown some benefit. Um, of course, we need to use it a bit carefully. You wouldn't uh, expect it to have a lot of benefit if it's used two or three weeks into the onset of disease. So uh, think, think of remdesivir as a Tamiflu analog where it helps you improve with your symptoms if used within the first few days of disease onset. Um, so remdesivir is promising and it's the only one we have right now to use in an evidence-based manner. Um, I have a lot of interest in um, drugs that can blunt the immune, immune response. Um, you know, like I was mentioning, um, the virus, the viral pneumonia affects them early on in the disease, but as they stay in the ICU and go into week two of their uh, illness, uh, the, the viral pneumonia becomes uh, uh, a silent player and the host immune response uh, leading to the cytokine storm caused death in a lot of our patients. So a safe way to blunt that cytokine response, either from an IL-6 uh, or an IL-1 inhibitor or from the more generic steroids that we could use, um, a signal of hope in, in that setting would help us a lot at the bedside. Mm -hmm. Great, okay, the next question is from Kimberly. What do we know about the reasoning for the hypercoagulability in COVID patients? 
Oh, that's a great question. And uh, just to put that in co context, Kim, you bring up a very good question. Um, a lot of our patients um, in New York and across the world probably uh, died of venous thromboembolism. Um, COVID is uh, unexpectedly a very prothrombotic disease process, uh, COVID-19. And uh, we were seeing clots in the legs, of course, but clots in the lungs, clots in the uh, venous system very frequently, even on therapeutic anticoagulation. And to couple with that, um, there have been a fairly high incidence of patients developing arterial clots, strokes, and MIs in the absence of known risk factors. So um, hypercoagulability is a big, big uh, issue in uh, patients with uh, COVID-19. Um, a few things that probably uh, contribute to this. One is the inflammation. As we know from the workhouse triad, inflammation and endothelial damage are big players in forming uh, clots and COVID being such a hyperinflammatory state probably uh, makes that worse. Um, the other thing that's coming from autopsy data, we don't have a lot of autopsy data, but we have a little bit. And what has been shown is that is there's a lot of microthrombi in the lungs from the inflammation and so forth. So I would suggest that the inflammation uh, that comes with COVID leads to the hypercoagulability of it. Almost all our patients were on anticoagulation, either therapeutic or uh, prophylactic. Um, but even on that, we were seeing massive pulmonary embolisms uh, despite being on therapeutic anticoagulation. Um, there is a lot of studies going on and uh, to look at more autopsy data, look at what kind of anticoagulation profiles patients should follow. So more on that to come, but yes, hyper venous clots, arterial clots are a big contributor to death and demise in this population. Okay, great, thank you. Um, two questions that are slightly related. One is, have you observed any IV extravasations with remdesivir? And someone else asks if there's any information about a potential subcutaneous formulation of remdesivir in the future. Uh, that's a good question. So no, we haven't noticed any, at least in our center, we haven't noticed any uh, infiltration um, yet. Uh, thankfully, uh, the side effect profile has been fairly tolerable so far. Uh, in terms of the sub-Q um, administration, I think there would be a huge value add to this so that we can use it in patients who are not necessarily admitted. Um, I don't know where uh, the process in making that formulation is in terms of drug, drug development. That makes sense. Okay, the next question, someone asks, what is your experience with using convalescent plasma? Yes, and good question. This is again under study. The, uh, the, the, the logic works that if someone has had uh, and has recovered from COVID-19, uh, the patient would have antibodies to COVID-19 presumably, and transfusing those antibodies in a suitable candidate might protect, some, protect the second patient. Um, we've used it, thankfully not a huge lot of side effect profile, um, but that said, it's off-label. There is no strong, there is no data showing that uh, it would work in the setting of COVID-19 illness. Uh, so it would be one of the things that you would use either as a compassionate use in a patient who's an extremist or under the umbrella of a uh, trial, of a drug trial. Great. Okay. Um, the next question um, is from Sarah. She asks if you have any thoughts on the five-day versus 10-day remdesivir data. Uh, this is a very timely question. I think just last night, a New England paper came out that there was no difference between five and 10 days. Um, and that said, if a patient was critically ill in the ICU, uh, I would prefer going to the 10-day arm as long as there's no significant side effect profile. But for all comers, 
uh, and we can send this paper out later. There is no difference uh, in the five versus 10 they are. Great, okay, yeah, that was very timely. Um, our next question is from David. What do you make of the anecdotal reports of patients who've recovered from COVID-19, are antibody positive and still shedding virus? Yeah, um, th these are challenging times, you know. We don't know yet. So let me back up a little bit, you know. So uh, most viruses have an incubation period of say seven to 14 days. In COVID, there's a little bit of a, earlier onset, so around two to 14 days or so. And then you the patient falls sick, hopefully recovers, and then goes on to um, continue to go home and recover. Um, we are, at, in most places in New York, we are testing patients at 21 days, post their first positive, to see if uh, they still have PCR positive from the nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal swab. Now, if they are positive, we don't, quite know if that's uh, the PCR, which picks up dead viral RNA as well, uh, is uh, uh, if the PCR is positive from a patient who's been infected, has recovered, is cured, if you may, and is uh, PCR positive because it's still harboring dead virus in their uh, respiratory tract versus the patient still has active viral shedding. The only way of knowing this would be to do viral cultures, which require a fair amount of infection control practices, a BSL-3 or above lab. Um, and that research is ongoing in some labs. But for now, um, we, when we test patients um, even a month out after their initial SARS-CoV-2 NP swab being positive, they are still showing uh, they are repeat PCR being positive three, four weeks out of their illness. And again, while we don't know if that is dead virus PCR uh, RNA being picked up by the PCR versus actual viral replication, uh, we don't know that yet. Um, hopefully, future studies looking at viral cultures will help define that fact. The dead virus obviously will not grow on culture. Right. Okay. Um, the next question from Jean, are well-controlled diabetes and well-controlled high blood pressure considered high risks for mortality with COVID? Um, yes. So hypertension for sure. Um, I can tell you our experiences from the Bellevue ICU. So. Um, the major risk factors for being critically ill were in our ICU being male. 72% of our ICU population were male in gender. Uh, being obese, being hypertensive. Um, there is a lot of research going into how the ACE inhibitors and the uh, ACE receptors uh, play into this. So being hypertensive is a big risk factor. Uh, diabetes and having sleep apnea were other risk factors uh, other than that. But yes, so male gender, old age, um, uh, hypertension, and obesity were our big risk factors for you, for a patient to become critically ill and enter an ICU. Um, and then other, sorry, sorry, Jen, other conventional risk factors like a poor, if a patient has pre-existing lung disease, their cardiopulmonary reserve for battling this would be lower. So if a patient has COPD or ILD, advanced lung diseases in those uh, spectrum, they would be more prone to have respiratory failure from this virus. Kind of a converse of the question asked before about viral shedding with antibody positivity. Um, Judith asks for your experience on diagnosing COVID-19. She says we have several cases of RT-PCR negative results in patients that have signs and symptoms and even chest scans, scans that are suggestive of COVID. 
How do you characterize such patients in this era? Oh, uh, very good question, guys. And um, so this goes back to how sensitive the nasopharyngeal and the oropharyngeal tests are. You know, there is so much that can go wrong between poor sample collection to not just having an, a high enough viral burden to be PCR positive. So if you have a patient, it, so let's take it step by step. If your city or your community is being hit hard by COVID, and that would essentially mean almost all places right now, um, and you have a patient who has a fever and a cough and either a GI illness or a respiratory illness, that patient is should be treated as a patient with COVID till proven otherwise. And by proving otherwise, a negative PCR uh, on an oropharyngeal test at this point means nothing. Now, we've had patients here, and there's also strong data from Singapore that shows that people can be negative, 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 positive on the fourth test, be positive for a couple of times, go back negative and be positive. Um, so the, the presence of a positive PCR in a patient who has a pre, pretty high pretest probability of having COVID, uh, you, you should take the PCR test with a huge grain of salt and not make any major decisions. Do not de-escalate your isolation precautions. Don't treat this patient as a non-COVID patient just based on a PCR. Um, the chances are that the PCR would be a false negative. That's really helpful. That goes back to the issue of sensitivity and specificity of the test. Um, okay, so Jeannie asks, um, they are interested to know which clinical manifestation of COVID-19 has surprised you the most? Uh, that, that's a great question, Jeannie, thank you. Um, so, so two things probably. One is the cytokine storm that we were mentioning, where you know a patient who came into the ICU with uh, COVID pneumonia on the ventilator was improved for the first three or four days, and then suddenly um, started going into the cytokine storm, which was manifested by uh, high heart rates, high respiratory rates, uh, vasodilatation, vasoplegia, and shock, um, uh, CRPs, uh, inflammatory markers through the roof, and Despite all our efforts to blunt the cytokine storm and provide supportive care, a lot of our patients died uh, in our ICUs in front of our eyes because of the cytokine storm. This is something that we, uh, or I personally, had never faced before. And the answers that we could provide to questions that the patients uh, you know, asked us in this setting were uh, quite uh, humbling. The, the second thing, and uh, I think we were taken a little bit off guard because uh, of the data from China is that the amount of renal failure that we saw in our ICU population was way higher than what we had expected to see. We expected COVID to present as a respiratory failure, a viral pneumonia, ARDS picture, and we were equipped with ventilators and negative pressure rooms and uh, equipment to deal with that. But when we saw that uh, around 40% of our patients required renal replacement therapy, uh, our resources to deal with that uh, had to evolve very quickly. So for example, of our 300 odd ICU patients, around 130 of them were or are still on dialysis. And uh, many of them were on renal replacement therapy through uh, regular dialysis, which in the ICU is very resource intensive in terms of machines and equipment and nursing care. So early on in late March, early April, we switched over to a PD model, a peritoneal dialysis model, which was able to provide renal replacement to a large uh, swath of our population. 
So be, and if you probably know this already, but be very careful about the renal failure that comes with this disease. And these were patients who didn't have any chronic kidney disease. These were patients coming off completely healthy from the street who went into horrible renal failure requiring urgent renal replacement therapy. So the two things that surprised us and, and we're preparing along these lines for, the, for what we think is the inevitable second wave are uh, providing enough renal replacement therapy options and trying to find a therapeutic tool in being able to suppress the cytokine storm that comes. Thank you. Um, a couple of questions are related, basically asking about different types of agents, and I'm not sure that there's enough data on, it, on any of this, but someone asked specifically about JAK inhibitors or biologics. Um, someone mentions a study where there seems to be a good effect with hydrochloroquine and zinc and Tamiflu. Um, Someone mentioned another study of Tamiflu and Kalitra. Um, and then, yeah, so maybe if you just have anything to say about those or if it's really just too early. No, I mean, those are all good questions. And, you know, out of those 400 odd trials that are going on across the world, um, those are the questions that we hope will have answers very soon. So, for example, regarding the bio biologics, um, rituximab uh, is being studied. Uh, Olocumizumab is being studied, uh, cetuximab, IL-6S, TOSI. We've used TOSI in a compassionate use basis, and uh, it's being studied in a better, in a more uh, scientific uh, manner. So definitely, and I think there is a big role of biologics in trying to suppress the cytokine storm in terms of targeted therapy. Now, in terms of uh, hydroxychloroquine, I'm a little bit more uh, uh, unenthusiastic about that, given uh, what's going on in terms of the side effect profile and uh, the at least the observational data coming out of New York. Um, uh, but uh, at least the biologics might help. Um, uh, Tamiflu is being looked at as is other anti antivirals. Um, I think uh, over the next two or three months, and I hope before the second wave hits us, we have some concrete answers on what works, what doesn't. Um, someone asks about um, this question here. Um, are there other than the oxygen levels? What are the most important markers of disease severity? Are there any, you know, IL six lymphocytes, or I would ask CD eight, anything like that um, that you've noticed that can help you guide how severe the disease. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, while COVID pneumonia and COVID ARDS starts as a, uh, as a respiratory failure, as a hypoxic respiratory failure, um, a lot of our patients quickly progressed to multi-organ failure. Um, we're now surprisingly seeing, uh, so in New York, we're seeing in children, uh, MI, the Kawasaki profile, uh, the uh, multi-system inflammatory system uh, uh, response in kids. And we're seeing, uh, very new to us is the Kawasaki disease profile affecting adults as well, where patients go to the cath lab with a STEMI equivalent and have clean coronaries and myocardial ischemia. Uh, so the cardiac profile is a bit different than conventional viruses. A fair amount of transaminitis, like I mentioned, a fair amount of renal failure um, comes with it. Uh, so the three broad spectrums would be you know, hemodynamics, renal failure, and uh, respiratory failure. Someone asked, based on this high thrombotic risk, are you using anticoagulation, you know, at therapeutic versus prophylactic dosing? And that also raises the question of, um, are you waiting to see that, that, that patients are having symptoms of 
you know, that thrombotic effector, is it just being given more universally when someone's diagnosed? How's that? Um, that's a great question, Jen. And before I go to that, can I answer, uh, Paul just asked me a question. Did you just say that a second wave is inevitable? Uh, is that specific to New York? Or are you referring to the US as a whole and worldwide? I'll just answer that quickly because I think I should clarify my, my mm -hmm. um, perspective on that. Um, I was talking about mostly New York, guys, simply because as most of you know, New York is a really densely populated place, as is most places of the world. Um, but uh, New York has certain uh, unique uh, uniqueness to it. For example, the tight public transport system that uh, hugely the immigrant population that has poorer access to conventional healthcare, which makes it very prone to uh, getting a, a, a pandemic go rampant like this. Um, when I mean a second wave, when you look at antibody tests across the city, it's barely 20% across the city. And uh, the conventional numbers for getting herd immunity are close to 70 to 80%. Um, so while I hope that we don't have a second wave and we've seen the ugliness of this disease only once, uh, we are preparing and very cognizant of the fact that as the social distancing parameters liberate and they have to at some point, um, and people become close to each other in businesses and restaurants and whatever, um, the the virus which is in the community spreads again. So while I hope we don't have a second wave, we are preparing and anticipating one, uh, especially in New York City. Um, to the question of anticoagulation, uh, like we mentioned, patients are really prothrombotic. Um, a lot of our patients are so sick in the ICU and infection uh, control parameters to get them a formal CT angio of their chest uh, was so uh, laborious. We were studying uh, anticoagulation based, therapeutic anticoagulation based on the D dimer profiles. So almost everybody was on uh, prophylactic anticoagulation with Lovenox and heparin. But if the D dimers went up to above a certain level, we arbitrarily called it 4,000 and above. Or if we had evidence of an of a, uh, objective clot, we moved over to a, uh, a therapeutic uh, anticoagulation arm with either Lovenox or heparin. We held off on the NOACs. Okay, I think we probably have time for one or two more questions. So this one is a follow-up of the question about diabetes and hypertension. I think the person just wants to make sure that you're saying that there's still risk factors, even if they're well-controlled with medication, we're still seeing. Yes. 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 Okay. I thought so. Um, okay, so how about one more question? Um, this one is from Henry. What role do children play in the spread of COVID-19? And in general, do you have any ideas about why they uh, generally speaking, aren't getting as sick? Um, that's a good question. You know, we don't know. There have been, thankfully, less children and especially uh, less children in the ICUs than adults. Um, there's not a clear understanding, but it might have something to do with the uh, ACE receptors and the uh, fact that they're not as mature in children as they are in adults. Um, What's affecting children in New York now is that Kawasaki profile that I was talking about, but the actual COVID ARDS uh, part didn't seem to affect them as uh, much. And the thinking from my pediatric colleagues seemed to be because of the uh, ACE inhibitors that are not as well developed in the kids as they are in adults. Great, thank you very much, Dr. Mukherjee. And thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. Thank you.